Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Jonathan Ike. He is a former senior writer for The Wall Street Journal. He is the New York Times best-selling author of five books, including Ali, A Life, Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig, and Opening Day, the story of Jackie Robinson's first season. His latest book is King, A Life. This is the first major biography in decades of the civil rights icon Martin Luther King Jr. and the first to include recently declassified FBI files. I'm joined by 19 of my Harvard classmates. Okay, I'm Liz Morey, uh, class of 63, uh, live in Stoneman Park, been here for 15 years, a native Californian, very proud of it. Uh, retired, almost clinical psychologist, and uh, very interested in uh, following further on understanding about my enslaver ancestors and people that I may be able to contact uh, with that. Uh, Alden Briscoe, born in Mass General, grew up in Northwestern Connecticut, lived in Aiken, South Carolina, Washington, D.C., Flint, Michigan, Chicago for 15 years, and now just outside of San Francisco. Uh, John. <laughs> oh, hi, John Woodford here. Class of 63, um, here in Michigan, my home state, but I'm a native-born Chicagoan, and I've been at University of Michigan in publications for a while, an alumni publication, but now I am retired. Okay, John McCluskey. Uh, John McCluskey, I'm living in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm the baby eavesdropper of this group. I'm class of 66. Um, Gardner, editor, um, short story writer, um, and uh, uh, love this conversation. That's why I'm, I always try to peek in when I can. Hi, Jeff Fox. Uh, <clears throat> it was me, right? My turn. Okay. Uh, uh, born in Chicago, uh, years of experience in and around Latin America, uh, was a, uh, teaching sociology for several years. I'm now living in Spain and writing fiction. Okay, Ron. Uh, Ron Blau, class of 63, worked in TV and video all my life. I'm still working freelance and also making videos as a volunteer, mostly for climate stuff. Okay, Bill, Bill. Bill Collins, uh, grew up in, born in Boston, grew up in Boston area, Harvard 63, Navy 20 years, nuclear power, then Retired from the Navy, got into municipal waste management and then nuclear waste to the Savannah River site and retired now and doing various volunteer work. Just finished the volunteer income tax assistance season here in Asia <laughs> to low income people. Okay. Mm. Uh, Peter. I want to ask Bill if he'll do my income tax. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have the same question. <laughs> yeah, well, we're we're not accountants. We're volunteers trained by the IRS, and we we do income all kinds of income tax. Really, most mostly low income people who are eligible for earned income credit and other tax credits, free of charge. Free of charge. Wow, that sounds perfect. <laughs> we serve about we serve more than eleven hundred taxpayers in two and a half months in our wow. volunteer group. Yeah, Peter. Yeah, so I'm a editor and writer 
and I live up in the northern tip of New Hampshire. And after Harvard, I joined SNCC for a couple of years and uh, work in Albany, Georgia. And I was there about a year and a half after Dr. King was there. And uh, of course, in, in 61, he, he, uh, there were hundred, hundreds of people marched with Dr. King and went to jail including uh, in Albany, including, including dozens of college students who were all promptly expelled from Albany State College wow. for marching. They, they finally gave them their degrees somewhere around 2010 or 2015. Whoa, <laughs> wow. But um, the, the, the uh, there's one story I remember, I've always heard about Dr. King, the, the two in, in all the, the two largest black churches, uh, very big edifices, sit kitty corner from each other. And the crowds were such in both churches with people standing at the windows looking in and the street and the steps. Dr. King had to go back and forth. When he gave his speech there, he had to go back and forth from one church to the other to, to give his speech. Well, we, I think everybody, uh, particularly the young people need the type of book that our guest is writing now because the uh, Dr. King is really not the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. And I think that sort of uh, thing keeps people from being a part of it, feeling a part of it. So looking forward to today. Okay, George Allen. I was also a class of 63. I roomed with the late Fred Easter and uh, Obi Armstrong. Profiled <clears throat> in Kent's wonderful book. Uh, did law school at the University of Colorado and practiced law in Denver for eight years and then the far western tropical Pacific for a couple of decades and back in Colorado for a while. And now I'm doing consulting work related to Guam and the Marianas and the uh, impact of uh, okay. this location. All righty. Nick. Uh, Nick Bancroft, Medfield, Mass, uh, class of 1963. And I should say welcome to Miami at the moment because it's 86 out in Medfield, which is uh -huh. unbelievable. <laughs> Very uh, good. After uh, in the Peace Corps for a couple of years uh, in India, uh, small businesses, uh, um, consulting for, and then back to Boston, um, trust wills and estates, and then retire. Okay, Ken. Uh, Ken Manister, uh, class of 63. I live in Los Altos, California. I grew up on the south side of Chicago. Uh, I'm a retired professor of environmental law at Santa Clara University, and I'm very excited to see Hampy Howell on the call today because on Tuesday, Inspired by Hampy's great achievements as a squash star when we were in college, I played squash uh, for the first time in 60 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it appeared that I had not played squash for 60 years. <laughs> <laughs> At least you didn't break Mason. it. <laughs> Mason. Uh, Mason Morfitt, class of 62-3, Kent's former roommate. Uh, I've spent most of my career working in land conservation. I'm now working in climate change. Uh, I live in Maine in the wintertime, I mean, in the summertime. 
Uh, currently, I'm in a suburb of St. Petersburg, Florida, wishing that the uh, opening record of the Tampa Bay Rays would offset the uh, terrible politics of Governor DeSantis. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Marcy. Um, <clears throat> I run Clean Air Campaign, and it's Open Rivers Project in New York City, which has pushed for fairer, wiser public spending priorities for many decades. Okay, David Allen. David Allen in Concord, Mass., although uh, brought up on a farm, uh, Hoosier land across the river from Louisville, Kentucky. Very different worlds here and there. Had a multifaceted life, uh, business, academics. Uh, I've been late to making the world a better place. So I sit at the feet of my colleagues here whose young lives went there. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing as many of us as possible at the reunion. I regret to say I will not be able to be here very long today, but looking forward. Okay, Anne. Hi, I'm Ann Huberman. I live in Peterborough, New Hampshire. I'm a retired academic librarian and a climate current climate activist in Peterborough. Okay, Spencer. I am Spencer in uh, somewhat uh, 80 degree Florida, the real one. <laughs> Just had a bunch of notifications about its state uh, on the news this morning. It wasn't very flattering, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I am class of 61, uh, and I uh, um, have been uh, dedicating uh, most of my life to uh, the last 40 years to sustainable development, uh, beginning in 87 when I launched the uh, world's first uh, broadcast uh, of uh, 10 heads of state, beginning with Bush and Gorbachev and Li Ping and Gandhi that this was going to be exactly the, what we're seeing now, the 21st century, as uh, the uh, uh, crisis of the, uh, of the ages uh, for sustainable development. Okay, David McGregor. Hi, um, in Queens, uh, worked in government and architecture. And I will say to today's author that my first hero as a little boy was Lou Gehrig. And so I'm really excited to have him here, both for Lou Gehrig and for Dr. King. Okay, Hamp. Hamp Howell, class of 63, had uh, two white roommates, Doug Shapiro and, and somewhat David Allen. We're in the same cohort there. Um, I, I, I went on Martin Luther King's March, March on Washington in 1963 without really knowing what it was all about. But, well, I did intuitively. Uh, and I followed him through uh, the uh, um, and his anti-poverty work and I, uh, I, I, I and trudged through the through the mud in uh, DC when when he had a tent city there. And, and he was a person that made sense out of the 60s for me. He, he uh, really was. Okay. All right. Uh, Jerry. Good morning. Uh, Pasadena, California. Uh, I also was in the March in Washington in August 28th, 1963. But after that, I went to law school, then to the Peace Corps, was inspired by John Kennedy. I was going to go out and 
changed the world, if you like. Came back, worked for the Department of Justice, an environmental lawyer, joined an oil company, then joined a nonprofit, Audubon, California, then uh, decided to spend most of my time in the water area in terms of water quality, water supply, et cetera. I was the vice chair of the State Water Resources Control Board in, here in California, and I'm still doing environmental work. All right, Ezra. Good morning. I am uh, a retired professor of psychiatry at Yale University. Hi, everybody. Sorry, I can't come on screen uh, at this point. Uh, class of 63, this week I'm sharing the Tennessee Three. Uh, I left Harvard, went straight to the Harlem Action Group and stayed in Harlem for the next 24 years and started Youth Build and ran it for 40 years. And now I'm trying to figure out uh, how do we transform our economy? And uh, at our reunion, uh, David Allen and Ann Huberman and Ron Blau and some other of our graduates are all leading a session on the future, on democracy in action. What do we do in our 80s to create a fair and just society? So maybe some of you will come and join us and uh, life, we still have time to make a difference and I'm happy to be here. Thank you, everybody. Okay. Good. And Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for coming on, and it's so good to see you. Well, thank you for having me. This is quite an interesting group. I would just like to ask you questions for the next hour or so or more. <laughs> um, but I will speak briefly about this uh, book and my journey, and then I'll just open it up to questions because okay. I have a feeling that there's a lot more um, wisdom to come from you than there is from me. Um, I guess about Seven years ago, when I was working, finishing up my Muhammad Ali book, I realized that I had been talking to a lot of people who knew Dr. King, and I was hearing these great stories about, about Dr. King from people who knew him well. And I had this just epiphany that we've turned him into, I think Peter, it was Peter who said, we've turned him into this saint. We've turned him into a monument and a national holiday, and that here were people who really knew him, um, and that I could basically go around the country and, and interview people who knew Dr. King and that the window was closing for that opportunity. So um, without a book contract or anything yet, I just began doing exactly that, um, interviewing um, people who, who knew King. Some of them I knew already because I'd interviewed them for my Muhammad Ali book. I'd, I'd spent time with Andrew Young and Jesse Jackson and, um, and um, Harry Belafonte and, and uh, Dick Gregory. So I started with those guys because I already had their phone numbers. And then um, literally just went to Montgomery, went to Birmingham, went to Atlanta and started knocking on doors, calling people really more than knocking on doors and asking if I could come and talk to them. And um, I quickly decided that, well, I, I also realized that there hadn't been a King biography um, since Stephen Oates's book in 1982. And that's you know coming up on 40 years, it's, it's, it's over 40 years now. Um, but when I began, it was coming up on 40 years. And that just seemed preposterous to me um, that there should not be a new King biography every, you know, five or 10 years at least. And um, I, I admired um, the, the works by Taylor Branch and David Garrow, among others. Um, but those were not biographies. Um, Michael Eric Dyson's books are terrific, but not biographies. And a biography does something very different. So um, I knew that I could interview dozens of people who knew King. I knew that I would find um, that a lot of FBI documents had been released. And then I began looking around to see what else might be out there and quickly discovered that um, the Schomburg Library in Harlem had just acquired um, papers that belonged to King's personal archivist, uh, Lawrence Dunbar Reddick. 
and that nobody had seen them yet. Um, I was the first person to request access to those boxes. Um, and then there were other archival finds that were just, you know, mind blowing to me. Um, so I just began what became a six year journey to um, to write a new King biography. And, and here I am now, um, six years later, um, and the book comes out on May 16th. So um, that's the short version of, of how I got started on this. And, and I could talk a lot about, you know, what I learned along the way, you know, what where I think we've gone wrong in um, in telling King's story over the years. Um, but, you know, this is really more than anything an attempt to um, restore some of his humanity, uh, treat him as uh, as an intimate, you know, a, a, a more intimate look at his life when we're, you know, you you understand his his pains and his glories, that you understand his flaws as well as his his heroism. And I think his heroism comes through more strongly when you um, when and I think this is what what Peter was also hinting at, you know, when we treat people as as saints or superheroes, we can't even imagine walking in their footsteps. We can't imagine trying to apply their lessons to our own lives. Um, but King, you know, had struggles. He, he suffered emotionally um, in not just in because uh, his work was so difficult, but because the uh, federal government was was intent on making it more difficult. And that, um, you know, he was under this constant state of harassment. Uh, he was attacked by, you know, as as you uh, as you folks know, um, he was attacked by by leaders from all sides, from, you know, the liberal left wing, from the, um, you know, more radical black leaders, from religious groups um, that that he thought might have had his back. So, you know, he was he was under a lot of pressure and he took this stuff really personally. He, you know, one of the things you hear as you listen to, well, you don't listen to them, unfortunately, we, we read the transcripts of the FBI um, wiretaps on his phone calls and, and you can see how he's, 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 he's really beaten up by, by this, by the, by the constant criticism, by the, um, by the bad press. Um, you know, he had feelings too. And I wanted to write a book that would, um, that would, make you feel um, a little bit more of what he went through and understand some of the key people around him too. His, you know, Coretta Scott King has never gotten the treatment she deserves in a book. Um, there hasn't been a proper biography of her yet. So um, I wanted to give um, the others around King their due as well, but primarily I was set out to write a book that would, that would um, restore some of the, um, the humanity that has been lost as we've built him up as this mythological figure. What are some of the things you've sort of corrected in the general sense, do you feel? Well, one of the things is um, that we think of him as becoming more radical in the later years of his life. You know, people say that toward the end, he and Malcolm X had a lot more in common. I don't think that's quite true. I think King was um, was radical his whole life. And we just didn't pay much attention to it in the beginning because so much focus was on uh, his his desegregation work in the South. But he was really saying all along that the North was just as bad. We just, you know, the North was the, the Northern media wasn't writing about it so much, and um, you know, we were. It was easier to focus on sort of the the good versus evil of King versus Bull Connor. But when, but he was talking all along about segregation in in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles. Uh, it wasn't just you know 66, 67, 68. Um, the other thing that um, I think that um, we do him a disservice is we. Um, we forget that he was um, that you know. We forget just how steeped in in religion all of this was. You know, we forget 
so that, that, that this was a religious calling for him. And one of the things that really struck me is a you know, phone call he had um, late, this is 1967 with Stan Levison, who was one of his closest friends and advisors. And Levison was saying, I think you, um, you, know, you made a mistake by giving that address at Riverside Church. Um, you know, it didn't sound like you. Uh, you know, I think it's gonna cost us a lot of support. Um, we're distracting from our mission. And you hear King, well, we don't hear him again. We read the transcript of him on the phone with Levison. And he's saying, haven't you been paying attention all these years? Um, this is who I am. You know, this isn't a political movement for me. This is religion. This comes from, you know, from God, from Jesus. Uh, this is how I've been raised. I've been, you know, I, I've been saying the same thing, you know, since seminary, um, before that even. And, you know, this has never been just about segregation for me. This is about fulfilling the vision um, that, that, that God has, has ordered us, commanded us to, to fulfill. And, and even King's closest friends and advisors, you know, failed to appreciate that. And, and that was really heartbreaking to me. That phone call in particular, you know, just really shook me. So I think, you know, we, we tend to think of King as a, as a political figure and not the, you know, not the moral um, leader that he really was. In this country, you know, left and right, I think we're uncomfortable um, with, with truly moral spiritual leaders. Um, you know, liberals are uncomfortable talking about, you know, religion in the public square and conservatives are fine with religion, but as long as it doesn't require you to actually fulfill some of the teachings of, of, of the gospel, right? Like if, as long as you have to actually put it into practice, um, then, then that's where it gets a little sticky for some of them. So um, I wanted to try to address some of those issues too. Uh, do you think William Barber is the closest that we have to uh, King today? I, I think Barber comes really close. I think um, I heard somebody say politically that Bernie Sanders may be the closest to Martin Luther King. And uh, that struck me as, you know, if there's a politician out there um, who's embodying some of the philosophies of King, that may be true. Um, but Barber, um, certainly in that he's, you know, he's, uh, he's leading the poor people's campaign. I mean, he's literally picking up King's final mission. Um, I think that that does put him, you know, as, as much as anybody can be in, in King's shoes. He's also obviously, a, you know, a religious um, figure as well. Um, and I think that, um, you know, the Poor People's Campaign in many ways really sums up where King, um, where not only where King was going, but what he was trying to say all along. And um, he, it was, it's, it's another sad chapter that he began to recognize that the country wasn't ready to go with him on that journey. I have a quick question, uh, and, and it's been a number of years since I read Taylor Branch's uh, book, Parting the Waters, uh, and so my recollection is probably not exact, but uh, my impression or recollection is that Branch said that in the, in the most famous speech, the, the I Have a Dream speech in Washington, that King departed from his uh, prepared remarks wanted to know if, and, and my recollection of Branch may, may not be accurate, but I, I would love to hear your impression of, of that particular uh, issue. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and uh, I hope you're not gonna get me in trouble here because I love Taylor Branch and I love that book. And, and you're absolutely right that he departed from his speech he'd written in advance and submitted to the press his remarks and they ended before the I have a dream portion of the speech. And um, Taylor reports in his book, and it's been repeated many times that Mahalia Jackson 
inspired King that when, when he was nearing the end of the speech, she felt like it really hadn't touched the audience. And she had heard him give the I Have a Dream speech um, in Detroit uh, a few weeks earlier, and that she shouted out, uh, tell him about the dream, Martin. And then King decided to add this brilliant coda to his speech and, to, and, to, and he went into the I Have a Dream portion. And I found that to be untrue. Um, the, the Mahalia does not get the credit, unfortunately, or fortunately. I think King deserves all the credit. And um, what happened was some people remembered hearing um, Mahalia shout, and she was shouting a lot. If you even just go on YouTube, you can hear Mahalia's voice throughout the speech, just saying, yes, yes, amen, all kinds of you know encouragement. Um, but you don't hear her say, tell them about the dream. I managed to get a, um, a master tape from Motown of that speech because Motown was planning to issue it as a record. So their audio was much clearer than the um, news cameras, the news uh, stations that had microphones on the podium. And you can hear Mahalia say, tell him about the dream, Martin, after he's already begun the dream portion of the speech. So she was echoing him. And, you know, somebody on the stage remembered hearing that and told Taylor Branch that that was the moment that he made the pivot. And, and um, you know, Taylor accepted that as, as truth as, as I probably would have too. But it's my strong belief that King just decided on his own and there's no transition. Like he goes from his written speech into I have a dream seamlessly. Um, and, you know, it's my strong belief that that King deserves 100% of the credit for just feeling them in the moment that he was ready to, to take another chorus, as a jazz musician would say, like, you know, he got to the end of the um, of the printed remarks and decided he was going to give that speech that he gave in Detroit a few weeks earlier that had really moved the crowd. And and he was off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Liz, um, I was wondering, I, I'm really enjoying every word. Uh, I was wondering what you found were the most unexpected things or the things that kind of jolted you most as you were doing your research. Well, you know, there's lots of little things that jolted me just in terms about his, you know, his personal life and about his um, relationships with Coretta and, you know, and, but like, I, I, let's, you know, focus on the big things for a minute. Um, on this, on the Coretta thing, the big thing that really struck me and Harry Belafonte told me this is that the reason King fell in love with Coretta and the reason he um, valued her so much was that she was more of an activist than him, than he was um, when they met. She had experience at, at, at Antioch um, with protest movements. She had done far more in terms of activism than he had. And that really appealed to him that, you know, King was, was a prolific dater. He had a lot of girlfriends um, pretty much his whole, his whole life. Uh, but certainly in, in, in high school and college. And I, I, was, I was asking Belafonte, why, why Coretta when he dated all of these fabulous women? Um, and he said it was because of her activism. He was really attracted to that, her passion, her commitment. And that led him all his life. She was, a, she was speaking out on Vietnam before he was. Um, so I think that was part of, I really wanted in this book to, to make sure the reader understood her um, in, in much more, with much more nuance. Um, the other thing that really shook me in this book was just how, I, I knew, of course, I'm, you know, if you've read Taylor Branch, if you've read David Garrow, you know how badly the FBI treated um, King. But what I did not appreciate, and I had this a subject, this was a subject of an op-ed that I 
that was published yesterday in the New York Times um, that I wrote um, along with Gene Theo Harris that, that Hoover, we've been blaming Hoover um, a little too easily. Take the easy way out when we when we pin it all on Hoover because the entire FBI mechanism was geared up to do this. Um, high level uh, officials within the FBI, uh, members of Congress knew what was going on. Members of the press knew what was going on. And LBJ in particular was updated almost weekly in great detail about the surveillance of King and encouraged it. He did not just allow it to continue. He encouraged it and, um, and, and clearly enjoyed it. And I think we've been letting LBJ in particular off the hook. Uh, we credit him as this great partner with King in, in delivering this important legislation in 1964 and 65. Um, and, and he deserves credit. Uh, you know, those were, you know, monumental landmark pieces of legislation. But we also need to recognize that that LBJ was no friend to King, that he was he was a collaborator in the in the campaign to, to destroy King. I wanted to ask you about uh when you mentioned Coretta and his life leading up to that, not about Coretta, but about um, the, um, the uh, Boston University Dean Howard Thurman and, the, uh, uh, and Sue Bailey Thurman, his wife, and the impact, the, well, the historic impact that they had on King uh, because Sue Bailey had gone to India and met with Gandhi and Gandhi had, and then she had taken Howard on a return trip and, uh, and uh, Gandhi had said to them that uh, the future of his movement in India, uh, if it was to have world meaning, and the, its advocacy uh, by African-Americans, which is uh, a very astounding and understated, uh, not very often mentioned fact. Uh, that fact that Howard Thurman was uh, uh, at Howard, was, was at, uh, Morehouse and was a close friend with Howard Thurman. Uh, Daddy King, his father, had encouraged him to go to do that. So I was wondering if you had dealt with that, uh, had encouraged King to go and study under Thurman. And I was wondering if you had, uh, 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 what you thought of that, uh, of that uh, piece of history and uh, how you think that reflects on him. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think Thurman, uh, the Thurmans in particular, I'm glad you gave his wife uh, some credit, um, that they're, they're, they're hugely influential. Uh, I don't think that's why King, I think it's only one of the reasons King goes to Boston. Um, and, and Daddy King didn't want him to go to, um, for a doctorate at all. Daddy King thought it was time to get, get to work. <laughs> he didn't need any more education. Um, but um, Martin Jr., to his credit, recognize the importance of those influences. And, and the King's um, embrace of Gandhi was a gradual one. I don't think he took it seriously at all, really, at Morehouse. I think meeting Thurman and spending time with him in Boston really helped him begin to appreciate Gandhi. Um, and then, you know, when he gets down to Montgomery, he's not really, he's talking about, you know, passive, he's talking about peaceful resistance in the same sense that, that I think most Christians would, but he's not citing Gandhi until Bayard Rustin gets down there and starts reminding him of how, that the lessons of Gandhi could be applied here and convinces King to like get rid of the gun that he was keeping under a pillow in the living room, like saying this is not exactly Gandhian. So um, it's a, it, like most of us, um, 
you know, King's education was was an, it was a gradual one, and it took a little while for some of those lessons to really um, kick in and for him to appreciate the you know not just the you know the importance of Gandhi's philosophy, but the importance of its strategic benefits in, in as a leader of a of a protest movement. I think all of that was happening, and had he not been thrown into this uh, bus boycott in Montgomery, it's not clear whether that would have just been, you know, another book that he'd read or whether it would have become a part of his life in the way that, um, that it really did. What a fabulous answer, rich with mm -hmm. knowledge. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Marcy. You. <laughs> um, the two Justins of the Tennessee Three have religious connections. One went to divinity school and the other is the son of a, a preacher. And I'm wondering if you followed what's happening with them and thought of them in the context of what you thought about vis-a-vis -vis King. Yeah, I've certainly been following the news uh, the last couple of weeks. And I think it's a, you know, it's a great example of where King can still inspire us. I don't know if they've um, specifically cited King, but this model of, of protest and this model of, um, of, of speaking out and, and suffering too, that was always the key for one of the keys for King. You know, he said suffering is redempt, uh, um, is is unrequited. Uh, uh, suffering is redemptive, and it, it was also great publicity. You know, he recognized that going to jail gave him more a louder voice. He recognized that um, the 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 brutal oppression of people like uh, Bull Connor um, magnified his message. Um, he, he 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 often. Um, instructed his his lawyers not to hurry to get him out of jail and he encouraged his people who were out of jail like Andrew Young to take advantage of the time he was in there because the media would be paying more attention so I think that sense you know we see that in Tennessee that the um, the overreaction of the of the racist white legislators um, has a backlash and that the the the, the people um, who are on the ground there who are trying to uh, call attention to that benefit from that backlash sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, I see John McCluskey. John, you had your hand up. Yes, I'm. I'm very uh, happy to hear to uh, uh, of uh, Howard Thurman's place in all of this. Um, very um, uh, not only a brilliant moralist, but uh, I've always been curious about that relationship. And and you opened up uh, that relationship very well. The, the second person that I had in mind here is in a later. Has anything new been found on? Um, King's thoughts on Malcolm X. Oh yeah, you're you're touching on all my favorite subjects now. Uh, before I move on to Malcolm X, I have to say one more thing that I I discovered that um that King and Thurman watched uh, the World Series together. I, I can't remember what year it was with when Jackie Robinson was playing in the World Series, and I had this fantasy of them discussing how Robinson embodied the the spirit of Gandhi. Like I just I, I hope that's what they talked about, but um. I don't know because no, neither of them wrote about it. Um, but anyway, Malcolm X, I am, I, I'm trying to figure out how to get this out there as a, maybe as a news article or a news story, because everybody who teaches African-American history professors who teach about Malcolm and Martin use the same quote from Martin Luther King, where he said he disagrees with, with Malcolm's um, willingness to use violence and that he thinks that it's, it's a, there's a famous quote. I, I, I should have it memorized. It's from Playboy interview um, conducted by Alex Haley. And it's, it's one of the longest, maybe the longest interview King ever did. So I 
got in touch with Haley's archives and asked if I could have the transcripts of that interview. And as far as I know, I'm the first person to see the, the transcripts of the interviews. And King was misquoted. The, the famous quote in which he criticizes Malcolm, he was actually talking about the nation of Islam. And Haley changed the quote. King's answer to how he felt about Malcolm was actually much more open-minded. He said he was interested in, in a lot of what Malcolm had to say, that they've only met once and they haven't gotten a chance to really know each other, but he thinks Malcolm you know, has a lot of the right answers, doesn't agree with everything. But his, his deepest criticism and was, was misquoted and intentionally um, misused. And um, I'm hoping that I can help correct the record on that. Wow. Wow. Jerry. Yes, good morning. Um, just for, first a personal comment uh, back to the I have a dream speech. Uh, I was lucky enough to be there that day. It was hot, it was humid. Many of us had a little bit of wine and we were kind of dozing. And the beginning of the speech was not particularly inspiring. So uh, we finally woke up towards the end, I guess is what it really amounts to. Thank God he had that codicil at the end. Otherwise, I think we would have just dozed off. Uh, <laughs> but my question to you really was LBJ. I saw your article in the New York Times and I must admit, I was a little startled. I'd always put LBJ up on a little pedestal when it came to civil rights. Why was he so enamored with King? Enamored probably is the wrong word. Why was he so intrigued by King's day-to-day -day movements? What, what, was, what was LBJ, what was his psyche like that he wanted to follow King? Did he not like him? Did he hate him? Was he scared of him? Uh, what, what was the reasons? It's a complicated answer. Um, you know, we know that LBJ um, loved gossip, and we know that he, um, that he, even his closest allies, he, he tormented them at times and um, talked about them behind their backs. That's part of his personality. And I think later, in, especially as the Vietnam War began to um, really undermine his presidency, he, he went a little crazy. Um, I, I think he really was, um, was driven to distraction. And Lady Bird has talked about this and really said that um, she felt like he was, he was losing it, um, deeply depressed. And, and I think that um, all that gossip that, that Hoover um, was providing him, especially when King began speaking out against the war, um, just really ate at him. And I, I also think he liked, he really genuinely enjoyed the kinky stuff. Um, I, um, I think he, I think he read every word and listened to every minute of those tapes because he, he was a, that's just his personality. I think he liked that. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, and, 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 and in truly, you know, Washington style, you know, knowledge is power. Having the goods on, on people is power. He used that, you know, that's what Hoover did to, to stay in office all those years. That's why the Kennedys couldn't get rid of him because they had, you know, Hoover had dirt on them. So I think that LBJ, you know, was, was a partner in that. I think they, 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 they shared that, um, that sort of, guilty pleasure of, of mm -hmm. knowing, the, knowing the dirt on, on people who they worked with. Mm -hmm. Dorothy. Uh, hello, yes. I have always held a theory based on no information. And so I'm gonna ask you if there's any truth to my theory uh, based on your knowledge. And, and my theory has been that, the, that 
uh, Reverend King was killed at the time he was killed because the Poor People's Campaign was beginning to succeed in uniting black and white and indigenous and other oppressed and exploited people, which is the unity which our exploitative system cannot tolerate. And that as long as people just focus on issues of race, then they can be marginalized. But if they build unity, they need to be killed. And I wonder if that's a crazy theory or if there's any indication that that was a turning point in his being targeted by whoever killed him. It's, it's not a crazy theory. Um, I would argue, first of all, it's complicated as everything is because the People's Purple's campaign did not appear to be going very well. They were having a hard time recruiting people to show up there. Uh, it, was, it was not exactly sweeping the nation. However, the FBI treated it as a serious threat and between um, that and King's um, increasingly outspoken voice on the war, he was treated more and more like an enemy. There was a memo sent from the FBI to every branch office saying that now more than ever, uh, we you know he represents the biggest potential threat as the Black Messiah. Uh, if, if you know uh, Malcolm's dead, the memo literally said this: Malcolm's dead. Stokely Carmichael isn't taken seriously enough. King is the number one threat, and. You know, the memo didn't say let's take him out. The memo said let's do everything we can to disrupt his operation and to and to damage his reputation. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that that kind of environment might produce somebody who decides to take the law into their own hands and and eliminate a guy. Um, is it possible that it was more um, devious than that? That that the government had something to do with killing him? A lot of people believe that to be the case, but nobody's found any evidence and I'm not, I'm going to try to avoid wading into those messy waters. Thank you for that answer. And of course, it's one reason the whole thing is why I think it's important that we all support Reverend Barber's Poor People's Campaign. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Ken. Uh, yes. Hi, uh, Jonathan. I have two, two questions. Um, uh, first question is in, I'm pretty sure it was June of 1964 in Chicago, there, uh, Dr. King spoke at a, a gigantic rally at Soldier Field. Um, and it, if you're familiar with that one, because I, I, I was trying to look up information about it a couple of years ago, and I really couldn't find very much. And yet it was Soldier Field was probably, I don't know, 80, 100,000 people there. I, I, my first question is, is there any context you could give for that, that event? Why and what it was and what its significance was? I'm pretty sure it was 66 and it was the... Um... Plan, it was the buildup before his um, arrival in the city when he moved into the under uh, the southwest side. Um, and it was the, the rally was um, I think it was maybe July. No, no, he moved in. It might have been sixty five because he moved to Chicago in January of sixty six. So it might have been summer of sixty five that he came. I remember. To I, Field. I I saw him in in Hyde Park in in sixty six on the Midway, uh -huh. and I'm pretty sure this was a year. I thought it was two before, but uh, yeah. Um, so he was beginning to make plans to to organize a protest in Chicago, as you know, and um, facing a lot of resistance to the idea. People who said that he should stick to the South, where he where he knew knew how things worked, and that um, this was part of his. He came to Soldier Field to try to begin to you know build support there and to sort of state his his demands and 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 start negotiations with the city. Um, you know, one of the things people forget is that you know. King came to Chicago with really specific policy ideas. 
you know, we we talk about how he was thwarted by Mayor Daly and that he, um, you know, was obviously he was treated horribly by by counter protesters um, on the city's west side, you know, rocks and bricks thrown at him. Um, but what we forget is that King actually reached a reached an agreement with the city for for serious um, policy changes that would have made huge improvements in the city's um, segregated housing and segregated schools. And then once he left town, the city the city failed to follow up on all of those things. But it really wasn't King's failure um, in Chicago. It was the city's failure to um, take him seriously. Thank you. My second question, if I may, um, I discovered uh, about five years ago, kind of accidentally, that my father had had an exchange of correspondence with Dr. King. Uh, at the time, my dad, who was... Um, in his 50s, uh, had returned to the attempt to finish his bachelor's degree from the 1920s, uh, and he was doing it through whatever the extension program was at Northwestern, and he did ultimately <clears throat> get his, his bachelor's degree. But um, when I discovered he had written to Dr. King, because my dad was doing a paper about school, um, about desegregation of schools, um, and it is a very interesting correspondence. I actually have it in front of me, coincidentally with what you just said. There is a line in which uh, Dr. King says, uh, he's asked about school integration, and in his response, he says, residential segregation gives rise to most of the other forms of the segregated pattern. That's a, a quote from it. Um, my question is, why was it so difficult to get King documentation released? Um, Boston University Library, which has a substantial archive, was extraordinarily uncooperative, and uh, the King family, I gather, is just unbelievably protective and restrictive. Uh, I was able to get uh, a copy of my dad's letter to him and of his response uh, through some very persistent work getting one of those things from the BU library and the other just through the happenstance of, of uh, knowing someone who knew someone at Stanford uh, where one of his biographers was. But my question is, is there, it just struck me as unusually restrictive for a major historical figure um, to be so difficult to, to get access to when you, you, you must have unlocked the key as much as it possibly can be. Yeah, I think that's one reason why there hasn't been a King biography in so long because the family and others have made it incredibly difficult to gain access to some of the materials. And then they are very reluctant to provide permissions to quote from those materials um, or uh, even more difficult when it comes to, to film. That's why you know, on the anniversary of the March on Washington or during Black History Month, you won't see footage of King speaking at, at, um, at the March on Washington because the family usually won't license it. Um, and I think it's, um, I don't know all the complicated reasons. I just know that there's a lot going on. Um, you know, I, I can understand the, the family's um, attitudes to some extent because they, you know, they, they, their, their father was taken away from them and uh, he didn't leave them with much because he more or less took a vow of poverty his whole life. And um, I think they're, they're bitter about that. They still believe that the government was somehow involved in his assassination. Um, there's there's a lot going on there, and they're they're just it makes it hard for for people. But I I would like to think that they would appreciate that you know he's a major historical figure and needs to be, um, you know researchers need to have more access to the materials. Um, 
the, the, the BU and, and Stanford are doing their best to, to distribute it, but the but it's not easy. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, Hamp. Yeah. Um, one thing that bothers me about uh, the treatment of a lot of historical figures and, and MLK is what sociologists call reification, where they get made into a thing. And uh, I appreciate your saying that uh, he had mental health challenges, particularly since I'm in psychology, and uh, I'm wanting to learn more about that. But be, uh, bef before you respond to that, I just want to say that uh, your, your book is the first book I've ever pre-ordered on Audible. <laughs> Thank you. I think you're going to love the, uh, the guy who reads it. He's a wonderful actor, and I think his voice sounds, one sounds great. I'm excited about it. Great. And, and I, I also see that uh, I'm intrigued with the corpus of work that you've done and what a bunch of di uh, diverse people there are. And I just want you to know as, um, that I identify deeply as a Capricorn with MLK and uh, uh, Muhammad Ali that, that, that you also uh, did, did a biography on. Yeah, I, I wrote about Al Capone. He was a Capricorn, too. Um, but, <laughs> I, I didn't um, know. Thank you. I think he and Ali shared the same birthday, if I'm not mistaken. But I, I, on, on the mental health issue, I just wanted to say that um, you know many of King's friends thought that he was clinically depressed that he may have suffered from even perhaps from bipolar disorder. Um, and um, he was hospitalized at least three or four times for um, what he called exhaustion. Uh, but Coretta sometimes referred to as depression. And um, when he got the Nobel Peace Prize, in fact, he got the news in the hospital and invited reporters to come and like take his picture in bed. Um, and he, when he explained what he was doing there, he sort of just said, well, you know, the doctors are just, you know, checking in, checking me out. And you can hear him on the phone with his advisors sometimes saying, you know, he's in the hospital, but there's nothing wrong. He just needs to rest. Um, and, and he wishes he could stay another few weeks. Um, so he was, he was really going through a lot. You talk about um, access to materials and uh, you mentioned the uh, fact that uh, Motown was recording the I Have a Dream speech. And I was wondering, is there any way to get access or to publicize that? Because I would think really good audio of that would be very valuable. Um, yeah, I, I would assume that it's valuable, but um, I don't know that it makes that big a difference between, you know, what's, you know, you can hear on, on your computer. I think that it only if you're actually making a record would, would it be that important? Or if you, I guess if you were making a movie, maybe you'd need the better audio, but um, that's outside my pay grade. Yeah, I'm, I'm so enjoying this. Uh, you have uh, really terrific insights. And uh, one of which is uh, something that, is, is lost in the shuffle a lot in understanding the civil rights movement. And that, that is that it was a spiritual movement and it came out of the church. And that kind of explains how King with all he went through could keep it together because he was drawing on a source greater than himself, I think a lot of the time. And that, that could resolve the a lot of uh, problems and contradiction. Of course, in SNCC, uh, for us kids, we had a different perspective on King. He was 
King was like the stodgy figure. He was the conservative who wouldn't let the SNCC kids do what they wanted to do half the time. And, and, and that's probably something that people aren't aware of that we view him as, as a, hardly any, not a father figure with all the pluses and minuses that that had for the, the kids. Uh, oh, your comments on LBJ are terrific. Uh, I ultimately, I think we have to take LBJ just the same way we take Lincoln and King himself uh, with all the warts and problems, you know, because uh, even with Vietnam, I've, I've always held uh, LBJ and, you know, he was, uh, I, I, uh, uh, I've, I've read stories about LBJ roaming around on his ranch in his convertible with Eartha Kitt or, or who knows who, throwing beer cans out, off the, uh, out the door. And, and uh, uh, even with Vietnam, I, I, I just think that the, the civil rights legislation, the unique genius that it took and the particular things about LBJ that it took to get that done, it really uh, demands a a lot of um, respect, uh, I, I always have felt so. Anyway, uh, uh, on, uh, on, you know, your point about the North too, we, we've vilified the South so much, which deserves to be vilified, but King, I'm from Chicago, I'm from Evanston, and, and uh, when King left there, he said he had never run across hatred in the South, like he ran across it in Cicero, where they were throwing bricks at him. Another interesting thing you bring up is, in the context of uh, Gandhi and of Malcolm, is, is violence and guns. And it's a very interesting thing how the civil rights movement existed in a context of the Southern gun culture. And so, this was another thing that was just kind of resolved, I think, by King's spiritual attitude. There were always guns in the black community everywhere. And that kept the, kept the temperature down to, to, a, to a certain extent. And it has to, the movement has to be understood in the context, I think, that there were always people around with guns kind of backing up the scene in the, in the black community. I'll just end this sort of a... <clears throat> long speech here by by saying you know uh, albany he, i believe was the second place he ventured out into after uh, or the first place after montgomery and he ran across a, a a very sophisticated power structure there and a police chief who was the 180 degree opposite of um bull connor and he who, who uh refused to become a tv star and handle the situation in such a way that, and then King went to jail and he intended to stay there and somebody bailed him out after one night. I think Andy Young or someone, maybe you know who, who did that, much to King's uh, chagrin. But for that reason, people of all, the historians have, and I wonder what your view of this is, historians have considered his time in Albany as something of a, of a defeat in the sense that he didn't get the kind of imagery and the kind of confrontations and so on. But on the opposite of that, the people in Albany always felt that he I, I felt that it was a raving success and that, you know, and that that uh, 
they never had any mixed feelings about uh, kings. Of course, they had mixed feelings about the fact that segregation just didn't automatically end and so forth. But, but as far as Dr. King, as far as his battles there at Albany were concerned, everybody considered that a, um, a, a great resounding success and one of the battles, the winning battles in the whole war. So I wonder what, if you had a thought on that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you completely. I think uh, people on the ground, and I interviewed a lot of people from Albany, felt like it was a success. King felt like it was a failure because it didn't really move the needle. There was no great um, resolution. It didn't lead to anything uh, more broadly outside of Albany. But it became an important tool, a teaching moment for him because he went into Birmingham having learned the lessons of, of Albany, that you need something that attracts national attention. You need um, greater conflict, if anything. I, I think they went into to Birmingham uh, more determined to, to focus on you know, economic um, issues, um, not just to be, not just to go in after everything, not just to say we're going to end racism here. We're going to focus. So they decided to focus more on, on boycotts and they, they recognized the importance of having a confrontation with with Bull Connor. That that would be the that's what they needed to to make sure that the nation noticed what they were doing. Uh, John Woodford. Well, hi. I wanted to point out that uh, the discussions about violence, are they for or against it, often distorts uh, the Nation of Islam. I work with the Nation of Islam, uh, not as a Muslim, but as a editor for years, and the nation and Malcolm X. And Elijah Muhammad, none of them really um, advocated people uh, carrying around guns or even using violence, except they were trained to, without weapons, resist police and other assaults on them, which they did on several occasions where they were not armed and disarmed uh, um, uh, police in New York, LA, L um, New Orleans, several times. But they weren't a, a gun-happy or a, even a, a group that recommended violence as a, as a tactic. They, defensive, uh, yes, but they weren't promoters of violence. They were said to be by, by Mike Wallace with the, you know, the violence that the violence produced in his documentary. But it's really um, a distortion and a falsehood to identify them with um, advocating violence. Oh, I agree with you completely. And if you, and I, I spent a lot of time researching the Nation of Islam with my Ali book, but you can't find any incidents of, of violence, except, you know, you maybe some people would argue that the, that the nation had something to do with the assassination of Malcolm X, but they, they, were, not, um, they were not creating acts of violence in their community. That was Jonathan Ike. His book is titled King A Life. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.